Well, good morning. I am Matt, and I am one of the pastors here, and I am so excited about beginning this new series in Acts. Uh, Happy New Year. We are beginning something new in the new year, and so I'm going to start jumping right into the text because we got a bunch of stuff to cover. Um, So here we go. Passage starts Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And they, while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. God Almighty, the one who by your sovereign, gracious gift gave us this word, this scripture, this declaration about who you are and what you have for us to be, Lord, we ask this morning that by the grace and power of your spirit that uh, you would crack this open in our hearts, that we would be able to see you resplendent and beautiful as you are. And that we'd be able to see ourselves rightly. And then, Holy Spirit, would you, would you show us what you have particularly for each one of us? Would you convict our hearts where we need to be convicted? Would you move in us to aliven, to restore, to renew what needs to be renewed? And Lord, would you prepare to send us out to be the very witnesses you have made us to be through your Son? We pray this in the name of Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. The people of God said... Amen. Well, Acts is an awesome book. It's a book of firsts, actually of, of many firsts. It's, uh, you'll see the first broad outpouring of, of the Holy Spirit. It's, a, it's the first sermon by an apostle, and then it's the first converts to the way. In Acts, we see the first miracles done by disciples that don't have Jesus right by their side. We see the first imprisonments, the first baptisms, the first churches, the first followers who are finally called for the first time Christians. In Acts, we see organized persecution and the first martyrs. We see the first structure for church leadership, the first missionaries, the first council. We see the first time where someone sits through a sermon that's so long that they die. It can happen. It's in the Bible. Lord willing, that will not happen to you today. 
We see the healing of this poor young man who fell out of a window. We see the manifestation, the first manifestations of the gift of the spirit. And we see the first time for the first time in the scriptures where Gentiles are seen as equal, as, as connected to God as the Jews are. Acts captures the beginning of the church. And with all these so-called firsts, there's actually not a start so much. This is a lot of firsts, but it's actually the continuation of what had already begun. Acts, in fact, is the second inspired book that the, uh, the apostle or the disciple Luke will, will write. It follows his first volume, which is titled The Gospel of Luke. And you see this right at the beginning of verse 1 that we read. He says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Luke, in Acts, is continuing what he began in the first book. And, and what did Luke begin in his first book? How did he start Luke? What, what is he declaring to the people? Of why is he writing these things? Well, let's look at Luke chapter 1. Verse 1, he says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke is this educated doctor. He's the early convert to, to Christianity who writes with incredibly impeccable, beautiful Greek. He's not like John, who's, who's your fisherman, who writes like a fisherman. No, he's highly educated, highly trained, and he writes something deeply beautiful in Acts. And he says that he does it because he wants to capture an orderly account. He's gathering from all the eyewitnesses that have seen the life and the ministry of Jesus for one purpose. That you may know and have certainty concerning the things that have been taught. God, through Luke... He inspired Luke to write the, both the Gospel of Luke and Acts, that those who would read it would know for sure that what they're believing is the ultimate true reality. He's providing for all of us who find ourselves saying, is this really true? Can I, can I really bank all of my life on this? And he says, well, I've, I've compiled all the information and I've, I've pulled together all the narratives, all the eyewitness accounts, and, and I've got the reality that Jesus was in fact alive and that, and that he was in fact dead and crucified and that he was in fact resurrected. And there's a whole bunch of people who saw it. And I want you to know, because I want you to know that you can trust it. You can trust him and this is these eyewitnesses, these stories that ended up changing their lives. This vision of a resurrected Christ that ended up through the whole book of Acts bringing about revolution in a way that nothing had ever happened before changed the world. And what's awesome about Luke's second narrative, the book of Acts, is that he actually ends up joining the story. 
And right around Acts 16, you see some of the verbs, I'm sorry, some of the pronouns change from they to we. Because, well, Luke's now traveling along with Paul. He's in the midst of the imprisonments. He's in the midst of the sickness and the trials and the struggles. He is now firsthand witness to these events. So Acts is a book that, yes, captures many, many firsts. But what's probably most important to understand and most important for us to remember as we walk through this entire study is that these are events that are chronicled on the pages are, yes, firsts. But they are most importantly a continuation of what Jesus started. They are a continuation, not the beginning, of what Jesus started. Back to verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus, what? All that Jesus began, began to do and to teach. Well, wait a minute. Luke, you take us in the book of Luke from Luke chapter 1 where Jesus' birth is announced all the way to his crucifixion, death, resurrection, and his declaration. Like it's the whole story. What do you mean began? You see, Acts is directly connected to Luke. It's directly connected because it's actually one story. Acts is actually a book about all that Jesus continued to do and to teach through the Spirit in his apostles and in his disciples. The Gospel of, and, the, and Acts aren't, aren't two different books. They're one book. They're one account. They're one movement, one story. And it's, and it's a story about Jesus. It's about Jesus' power through the Spirit. It's about Jesus' work through his word. Now, traditionally, this book has been called the Acts of the Apostles. If you look at your Bible, that's probably what it says at the front. This is the Acts of the Apostles. So, some writers have said, you know, the, the more accurate way of thinking about this is that, well, let's just be honest, since, since the Acts of the Apostles were done through the power of the Spirit, it really should be called the Acts of of the Holy Spirit. That, that fits a little bit better, but perhaps the most accurate way of calling the book of Acts would be to name it the continuing acts of Jesus, because it is the perpetuation, the continuation of what he began to do and to teach, which leads us to our, our first application, and that is um, there's only one story I know we came in this morning trying to think about how we're living our story, how well we're living it out or, or not well, how, how the, the events and the turns, the, the drama is unfolding, but there's only one story. And it's not Peter's story, and it's not Stephen's story, and it's not Paul's story, and, and it's not Jay's story. It's, it's not my story. It's not your story. It's the story of Jesus. By linking the Gospels with Acts with such clarity, there is only one great story and it's what the scriptures have talked about from the, from the prophets through the Psalms, that there's this great king that's coming and, and all is pointing towards him and he's right in the center of history and, the, and all the future is pointing towards his return and, and all power in the present is present only because of him. This entire story is only about him. So I got good news. If your story's bad right now, if you, if you begin 2018 thinking, this is, this is a bad story I'm living right now, I've got great news for you. That's not the story. There is one story and it belongs to Jesus Christ. And everything that's good and beautiful and powerful comes from him and through him and to you. 
through him. This is the great news, which means that um, you're not the star of your own movie. And, and for some of us, that's, we can feel that as really good news. We're poor actors, and, and we'd like a far better hero or heroine. We get to orient ourselves around this ultimate reality, and as we do so, we are more fulfilled, more satisfied, more empowered to live the life that he has actually created for us. That's the beauty of one more significant story in Christ. And the encouragement is this. And this is what the disciples all experience, all the, all the apostles, and what, what flows through Acts is there's not, there's not an end. Jesus ascends, but it's not the end. He ascends, and it continues, which means that today, the truest thing is that we have an alive, risen Savior for you, for me, that he is reigning, and he's not some little tiny Jesus. No, he is, he is enthroned with the Father. And his desire his, is to offer us, to give us the kind of power to live out every bit of what he has purposed for us. There is nothing shorted by Jesus to you. Nothing. Everything you need for life and godliness comes from the power of the Holy Spirit, there's nothing short, and, and I get it. I, I woke up this morning going like, I can, I can identify some areas of shortages. Loved ones, ultimate reality, there is no shortage for you. Everything is available through the one who is alive, who reigns, which means there's no need to worry, no need to fret. Jesus didn't say, hey, listen, go build my church. It's not your responsibility. He said, I'll build the church. You follow me. You be witnesses of me. So, what are these final words of Jesus? Before we, we step into what Jesus continued to do and to teach after his ascension, which, frankly, we're just, we'll occupy the rest of the book of Acts, we want to take the remaining moments to talk about something that is in between. What did Jesus teach and train and talk about during the 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension? What, what did he train and teach his disciples in? And what does that teach us? I see, th see, I see th three things from this text. He taught them the reality of his resurrection. He taught them and teaches us the coming of his kingdom. And he taught them and teaches us the power for his mission. So, the reality of his resurrection. Look at verse 3. It says, He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days. Over and over and over again, Jesus appears to his disciples for a span of what appears to be 40 days. There's at least 10 different appearances that are, that are chronicled by the, by the gospel writers and by the epistles. And what's amazing is that these are all first-hand accounts that will end up being peppered throughout all the sermons of Acts. And what, what happened in, in this is that it, it proved beyond a shadow of a doubt 
to these disciples that Jesus was really alive. Have you ever wondered about that? Why did Jesus have to show up multiple times? It's because contrary to what we think about first century Jews, they're not hocus pocus superstitious. Like, of course, a guy raised from the dead and he's the king. Like, we just assume, of course, you know, they were naive people. They they had much to learn about, you know, scientific understanding of how the world is. That's not true at all. They're just like you and me. If someone walks in and says, hey, uh, someone raised from the dead, they'd be like, no, that, that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen. And certainly someone is raised to the, uh, from the dead in the middle of history. No, they, they had to have proof. And Jesus over and over again shows up and, and he shows up with, as it says, many proofs. What that means is he walks through walls and then eats fish. He, he lets Thomas touch him. He says, listen, you want to see my, my nail scarred hands? You want, you want to put your hand in my side? You, you, can, you can touch me. He shows up unexpected for a breakfast meeting on, on the beach, and, and he eats with them, and then he goes with, on walks with them. He, he's physically present and, and shows up to, to hundreds, Paul says in Corinthians. Hundreds see him. He gave many, many proofs. So that by the end, not one of the disciples doubts. There is nothing recorded in any of the following movements of Acts or in any of the epistles where they're like, so we want to revisit the resurrection thing. Like, did it really happen? I mean, let's, let's circle back around to that thing. No, there was, that was never discussed again. There were, many, there were many discussions about many things in the early church councils, but the resurrection was never one of them. Why? Because hundreds of people saw him. He said, I'm really here, and let me show you why over and over again. They knew that they knew that they knew that this Jesus had raised from the dead, which is, which is fascinating. If you're not a Christian here today, maybe you find yourself thinking about, or if you're struggling with your faith, if you're going like, is this just something my parents told me so it made me feel good? You need to understand that, that Christianity is, is, is not some make-believe, let's have a, a sweet fairy tale to help us feel better about life. No, like it's, it's grounded in fact, in eyewitness accounts, in people who wrote about things while everyone else is still alive. It's, it's true. Christianity is not faith without reason, but faith with reasons, and many of them they were so convinced that he was raised from the dead and therefore was worthy of worship as God that most of the early disciples ended up being martyred for it. As someone famously said, I don't know who said it, no one dies for a lie. Not knowing it's a lie. Jesus taught them the reality of his resurrection and it changed everything for them. He also taught them about the coming of the kingdom. Verse 3 again says, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God is one of those central themes in Acts. And Jesus had talked about it a bunch during his, during his ministry. And, and of course, he also, during his time with the disciples, clearly he's discussing the kingdom with them over and over again. But even after this time, unlike the resurrection, the, the disciples had a, a little bit of a hard time getting their arms around, what, what is this kingdom he's talking about? What does it really mean? We see in verse 6, when they ask, Lord, will you now restore the kingdom to Israel? Is it, is it, is it now? Are you, you going to do it now? 
Now, it's easy to be hard on the disciples, but we have to understand that the full paradigm from which they were moving into this story, into the understanding of a Messiah who would come and restore all things was that if he's here and he's raised and he's clearly the Lord, well then, well, then now it's time for all the prophecies of Isaiah to take place, right? Everything's going to be good. Israel's going to reign again. Back to the old days, the good old days with, with, with David and Solomon, but, but even better because clearly this is Messiah. And so they asked this question, and it makes sense that they would ask this question in light of their understanding, in light of where they were in that moment. But it, but it does reveal three misunderstandings that Jesus, over the course of the book of Acts through his spirit, and even in some of the verses here, corrects and clarifies. The first misunderstanding is that they, they misunderstood that the nature of, of the kingdom, that it wasn't this political, earthly kingdom, but that it was this spiritual kingdom that was going to come from heaven to earth. That there's a kingdom where, where, where Jesus was going to actively reign and rule from heaven until he returned. That was a kingdom that was going to expand through the apostles, through the word, not through military might, not through government, and, and certainly not through thrones. The gospel would spread I said it's a central theme because if you take the book of Acts and you look for the kingdom of God, it shows up in verse 3, which is right at the beginning, and it shows up all the way through to verse 28. In verse 8, Philip says, Philip is preaching the kingdom. In 1422, it says, you must enter the kingdom. Paul says in 19.8, reasoning about the kingdom of God. In 2025, 28, 23, and the very last verse of Acts, it says that Paul was proclaiming the kingdom of God and preaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The disciples say, are you going to restore it to, to Israel? Which, which in light of Jesus' explanation and understanding of the nature of the kingdom is it wouldn't make sense to have the kingdom of, to Israel when it's being preached in Rome and, and, in, and in Ephesus. Instead, as the gospel was going forth, so the kingdom was advancing. As uh, Scott McKnight says, the kingdom comes when and where the king is known. The kingdom comes when and where the king is known. So do you know where the kingdom of God is? Well, as Jesus says, it's in our midst. It's where Jesus is known where the king is known. So, there was a new citizenship that was being taught by Jesus and, and a clarifying, a misunderstanding about the nature of the kingdom. But there's also a clarity about the scope of the kingdom. Jesus' kingdom encompasses a universal geography. It's a universal kingdom with a whole new geography it expands far beyond the, 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 the rational, um, the, the, the construct of, of the Jewish state, the boundaries of, of a nation. It goes far beyond that. He says to them in verse 8 that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and then in Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. It's not going to stop here. It's, it's not encompassed in a nation. It's, it's going to go out. It's going to go far beyond. What's amazing about verse 8 is that it's... Um, it's like an index, like a content index for the book of Acts. 
You look at it and it says Jerusalem. Well, the first, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And Acts starts from verse, from chapter 1 to chapter 7 and everything's taking place in Jerusalem. You get to verse eight, chapter 8 and, and there's, there's, because of the persecution, everything spreads. And you know where they go? Judea and Samaria. And then from there, as, as it spreads and they start asking questions about people that aren't Jews coming to Christ, it spreads into the Gentile country. And for the rest of Acts from 10, roughly on to 28, it's, it's taking place to the ends of the earth. It's, it's like a glossary, an index for what the book is saying. What Jesus says is that the scope will be ethnically and geographically all-inclusive. And it's going to include all peoples, far away and diverse what, what Jesus says to the disciples is you're going to be witnesses and you're going to be witnesses to the people that you know, to the people that are near you, the people that are like you. And then, and then believe it or not, I'm going to send you to people that are a little bit like you in Judea and, and kind of like you too. You kind of look down on them. And then I'm going to send you to people like the Samaritans who, who you don't like at all. And then at the end, I'm going to send you to people that you don't have anything in common with. They're completely different than who you are. That's the scope of the gospel. That's the scope of the kingdom. Jesus is saying, we're starting here but we're going everywhere. The kingdom goes everywhere. So I'm curious if you see the full scope of the kingdom. The, if I see it, or if I find myself understanding maybe a little bit of a, a, an American Christian centrality, like I have a particular possession of the kingdom, having been a, a nation that sends missionaries for at least a, a few few decades, 100 years or so, do I have a, do we have a monopoly on the kingdom? Or, or do I see the scope of the kingdom as something where, where Korean and, 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 and Chinese Christians actually are walking into and stepping into and living out the kingdom in a context and in a way that, that I have much to learn from, that we have much to learn from, that the African churches have ways of understanding the presence and the power of Christ that we, we just don't touch that we don't engage with, that well, we're not forced to. Do, is my scope of the kingdom wide? And because that's the case, because I don't possess the kingdom, well, Jesus' invitation is, is humility. The third misunderstanding is, is the timing of the kingdom. That's the most obvious piece. They say, is it now? Uh, Jesus, are, are, are we doing it now? And, and what they didn't understand there's, is that there's a, there is a now. There really is. And then there's also a, a, a not yet. They're asking him, is, is the promises that have been put out there by, by you and, 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 and the King, and, and the Old Testament, are they, are they, are they going to happen now? Or are they going to be fulfilled in this present moment, in one moment? The kingdom had come. And also, there is a coming kingdom. There is an inauguration, and there also will be a consummation. And, and we live in this, at times, uncomfortable tension between the two. There is a now. Jesus says in, in Luke 11, he says, if I cast out demons by the power of God, well, then the kingdom of God is upon you. It's now. There is a now. He says, you will receive power in just a couple of days. You're, you're going to receive power now. 
for life now, for kingdom work now. But there's also a not yet. Jesus prays, Father, your kingdom come. There, there's, there's a not yet. The, the angels talk about this, this Jesus who you saw, he, he's going he's gonna to come back in the same exact way to bring in the kingdom fully. So, so not yet. And, and the principle that we draw from this is, frankly, that the timing is not something that we're supposed to be worrying about. I say this to an entire culture committed to controlling everything about us, right? I love control. But clearly here, and, and it expands to far broader, is that timing's not our purview. And that we have no business focusing on the when. And don't get me wrong, people have tried. Many books have been written, you know, like Jesus coming back in 88, which became, you know, in 89, they were like, oh, 2088. You know, not, not this 88, another, I missed the numbers, got, got crossed. Everyone wants to know. We want to have a sense of control over what that looks like and when. But Jesus says, don't, don't focus on when I return, but, but on the mission until I return. It says that the, the angels look at the disciples and say, listen, stop looking up and just, just start looking out. That's the disposition of the kingdom, which... I want to know when God's going to come through and do things, don't you? I want to know when he's going to bring about the kind of changes I'm longing for, how long it will be that, I'm, that we're lingering in this struggle, this relational strain, this physical pain, the grip of futility. Uncertainty is not something that many of us bear well. And yet, ironically, it's in that very place, in the place of uncertainty, of not knowing what is, what is, what is the way? When is the way? Will it ever be the way? That it's smack dab in the middle of that place that God wants to build, grow, and mature faith. And ironically, it's from that place of discomfort and uncertainty that he's wanting to send us out to other people, which seems crazy, unless we understand one thing. That he is certainty. It's really what he wants us to know. That he's the certainty. Now and in the future, he's the sure thing. We can count on him. Come what may, come how long, he's the truest and surest thing. And so we wait with the disciples, with each other, and with the saints from the last 2,000 years. The last thing Jesus teaches his disciples is the power of his mission. The most maybe famous verse in Acts is Acts 8, Acts 1-8, which says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. We're going to be talking a lot about the power of the Holy Spirit because, well, frankly, it's strewn throughout the book of Acts. You can't go a page without running into it. So I just want to say one thing as we begin this study, and that is this. that Just like there is no such thing as character transformation without the power of the Spirit, just like you can't become more holy 
more gentle, more forgiving, more kind. There is also no effectual mission without the power of the Holy Spirit. Nothing is possible without the Spirit of Christ. I hope to discourage you. Loved ones, nothing is possible without the Spirit of Christ. I mean, Jesus says so himself. Nothing. And yet, with the Spirit of Christ, great things are possible. And the book of Acts is going to give us many different illustrations and moments where we'll be able to see that. But nothing happens without the Spirit of Christ at work. It's the only power you have. It's the only power you have. Imagine if you left here today believing that, you know what? All my power amounts to nothing. The only power I have is what he has given and granted me. That we lean into him, chase after him, long for him. The power of Christ. He says, you will be my witnesses. He's saying, you're going to be witnesses of me. You're going to be witnesses of who I am, not my possession. No, no, no. I'm the subject of who you're going to be witnessing about. The word witness is also one of those words that shows up 29 times in Acts. It's a little bit everywhere. And if you think about it, a witness is someone who, who tells about what they know, about what they've seen or what they've heard. If you're going to go to court, the judge doesn't care about your opinion, right? He doesn't care what you think about things, what your interpretation. He just wants to know what are the facts? What did you see? What happened? What are you a witness of? And Jesus says, that's, that's your job, which is great because that means your opinions don't matter. It really just means what do you know? Being witnesses means talking about what we know. And so I ask you, what do you know? Like, what do you know? What do you know about Jesus? Almost everything in the church, I think this is true, is easier than bearing witness. I mean, I, I know sometimes it's, the, it's crazy with the kids or I know there's times where like, you know, if you're going to serve at a soup kitchen, it's really messy or that, you know, you go on a mission trip and there's unexpected challenges. But, but one of the most difficult things and maybe the easiest thing to not do is to bear witness, even to give sacrificially. And I don't think there's anything more life-giving, more rejuvenating, more galvanizing to, to our personal story of faith and to, to our corporate confession than the power of people talking about the Jesus they know. There's a certain kind of fire with it, a certain kind of life that's bred into it. And not just in deeds. Somewhere along the line in the last 20 years, it's become incredibly unpopular, I would say, to evangelize, to bear witness. Do you, do you feel it? I mean, for those who've been around, do you feel it? Like it's, I feel it. 
it's it's as though we're trying to to sweep that under under the uh, under the rug, try to figure out what it means to do that, but not really try to figure it out. Outside the church, evangelizing, bearing witness, is well conceited or, or naive at best, or, or at worst, well, it's close-minded, it's intolerant, and maybe even bullying. But even in the church, witnessing is is fallen on hard times. Now, I, I firmly believe from the scriptures that we are to live a life that reflects thoughts, our inner world, and, and deeds, our actions of compassion and care, and um, that are directly reflective of the kind of life transformation, spirit-empowered heart that we're to live in. So, yes, internal changes, absolutely. Are there supposed to be deeds? Absolutely. And, not but... And that Christ calls us to speak about himself, about his kingdom, that he's inaugurated through his death and through his resurrection. He wants us to talk about that. He wants us to talk about the active work that he's doing in us now through the very life of Christ and his spirit and how the kingdom is being built. It's, it would be talking about how God's surprised with our church raised $50,000 and I don't know where it came from entirely. And some of you guys got your friends to, and there's this great story that, that you can, just a small thing you can talk about that the kingdom of God is advancing. There's a popular maxim that from everything I've researched was wrongly attributed to St. Francis and I've actually heard a couple of you guys quote it to me before. It says, preach the gospel always, and if necessary, use words, which I think is, is cute, you know? And, and I know the point it's trying to make. It's trying to say, let's make sure that, that the message we're talking about matches the life that we're living. And so live the life, live the life, and if necessary, try and use some words. Loved ones, many of us don't use words at all. Even when opportunities arise. And I think, it's, I think it would do violence to the text and dishonor what Christ declared to say that to not speak is to not live out the mission that Christ gave us. I know it's the new year. We just came in off of a crazy holiday. But if you take a moment and you jump right back into where these guys are, 40 days after the, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and Christ is there. And he's saying, you saw the suffering, and it was for you. And, and I'm giving you this whole new life through the Spirit, and it's for you. And you're going to have power, and it's for you. And you're going to be changed forever. And you must tell people about it. I think I 
think I'm most often more concerned about being identified personally, more concerned about being identified with the, uh, the bullhorn street preacher, fire and brimstone guy. Um, and that's, I don't want to, I so badly don't want to be identified with that, with some of the, some of the terrible views of what it means to talk about the kingdom of God. So I'm going to stay all the way over here to the point where I don't even want to identify with Jesus. And loved ones, I see it in us. We're, the, we're, we're a congregation, we're a people who, who want to be changed in our thoughts, in our, we want our interior world to be different. We want to be more generous. Like I, I watch it happen. Like I see people wanting to be more alive in their marriage and, and try to be better parents and even try and like do good deeds and reach out and try to make... But we are not a people, by and large, we are not a people of word. And I'm profoundly convicted, and I deal with mostly Christians all day long. But you can't read Acts, you can't read the book and go like, it was kind of like an option. It was, a, it was a secondary matter. As long as they were acting well and doing good things, it was, it's just not... May we not use the false St. Francis quote as an excuse not to have uncomfortable conversations or to say unpopular things. He said, you will be my witnesses. I mean, there's just no way around that. And loved ones, you get to be his witnesses. That's the beautiful thing that the gospel brings. It's the beautiful thing that this table reminds us of is that you get to be witnesses of this. It's the best story. As I said, it's the only story. So as we come to this table, the table of the king, this communion which reminds us of the great story he started and now sends us into, it also captures something of the proclamation, which I, frankly, had never seen in the passage before, 1 Corinthians 11. Listen. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now look at verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. One of the things that we do when we come forward is we bear witness. We proclaim, we declare, this is true, and this is true for me, which is why this meal belongs to Christians, saying this is, I identify with this, I, I take in all that it means, this is true. So loved ones, this morning, let us, let us bear witness with one another, let us proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. 
as the angel said, in the same way that he left. And then having proclaimed the Lord's death until he returns, in the meanwhile, let us also go out, having received this, proclaiming that Lord who is for us, who gave himself for us, and who calls us, invites us, draws us because of what he's done to say, tell the story, be a witness of this, and watch what it does to the church, watch what it does to the city, watch what it does to the country, watch what it does to your soul. Let's pray. Father, you gave your son for your people that we may have reconciled, renewed, refreshed relationship with you, one that was impossible on our own. The great story of Christ, the meta story, the all-encompassing story, the one who was and who is and who is to come. Lord, we want to see you. We must see you. That you would become bright and beautiful and palpable. So much so that we, we would be drawn to, led to, and couldn't help ourselves but to talk about you. Lord, some of us need to repent. Some of us need to seize what you have for us. And Lord, will you make us a bold people who bear witness? And, and even as we walk through this, this, this book, Lord, would you, would you allow the, the different passages, the, the different stories, the different narratives to ignite our heart to believe that you are the God who moves in powerful ways in small modicums of, of change and then in massive transformations. One day you're going to make all things new. Till then, Lord, give us grace. And Lord, give us power. We pray this in Christ. Amen. If you belong to Jesus, this is your meal. Come and receive the body and the blood of Christ.